welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, an editor at Dialogue, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. Today we are bringing you another session from the April 2023 Association for Mormon Letters Annual Conference. This time we are honoring Stephen Carter, the winner of the Smith Pettit Foundation Award for Outstanding Contribution to Mormon Letters. Stephen will be interviewed by another great author and editor, Angela Hallstrom. Now, this is an annual award for a mid-career artist who has made outstanding contributions and whom we hope to encourage to, to make more contributions. I will read from parts of the award citation. In a prolific career spanning 25 years, Stephen Carter has proven himself a literally versatile author committed to exploring his Mormon heritage, one of our leading cultural commentators, and a generous editor who has played an invaluable service in bringing a wide variety of extraordinary writing on Mormon subjects to publication. Stephen has spent his career writing about himself and others on the edge of LDS society, expressing the richness of spiritual inheritance and the bonds of community, while also expressing both the heartache and the humor of a questioner in this realm where we can see through a glass darkly. And it goes on, I'll just summarize, it, goes to, it talks about his early career as an assistant to Eugene England when they were setting up the first Mormon Studies program at Utah Valley University, his early essays, including Way of the Priesthood, which was cited as a notable writing in the Best American Spiritual Writing of 2006, and his essays were collected in the 2010 collection, What of the Night. At the other end of the literary spectrum, from his sometimes serious and introspective essays, Carter also played an integral role in the founding and running of The Sugar Beat, a satirical Mormon news outlet like The Onion. Among the articles he wrote were Painter Greg Olson Enters His Blue Period and Provo Temple Liftoff Successful. Since 2008, he has served as director of publications for the Sunstone Education Foundation, which includes editing Sunstone Magazine, where he has continued the tradition of talented editor essayists who have helmed that magazine and injecting more levity into the magazine than ever before. In recent years, he has worked diligently to restructure Sunstone as it moves into the digital age, including moving his essay writing into podcasts. He has co-written three books with comics artist Jet Atwood. They include the entertaining and informative Mormonism for Beginners, and two volumes of iPlates, graphic novel adaptions of the Book of Mormon, particularly the Mosiah chapters. And I cannot say enough about these comic books. They are so funny. I love reading them. My kids love reading them. It got us talking about the Book of Mormon. Beautiful, hilarious, and spiritually insightful works. Stephen wrote several pieces of Mormon speculative fiction in the 2010s, including the YA horror novel, The Hand of Glory, and several chillingly imaginative short stories. He edited the anthology Moth and Rest, Mormon Encounters with Death, a collection of 46 pieces in a wide variety of genres, including narrative essays, poetry, short fiction, theater, and visual arts, which won an AML award. His most recent book is Virginia Sorensen, Pioneering Mormon Author, which just came out earlier this year, a biography and critical analysis of the writings of one of the eminent Mormon authors of the 20th century. Carter forcefully argues that Sorensen's novels from the 1940s to the 1960s can speak with meaning and healing power to both believing Mormons and post-Mormons today. Whether as a creator of his own works, or as a shepherd to the many other authors he has served as editor, Stephen Carter stands as one of the most influential forces in Mormon letters in this new millennium, for which we are all grateful. And we hope this award signifies not just a heroic past, but an even more impressive future. Well, I just have to say, first of all, that I am thrilled to be able to spend this time talking to Stephen. Um, I have been a fan of Stevens for a long time. I have a stack of his books right here um, that I have really enjoyed referring to again over the past little while before I knew that I was I was going to be doing this interview. Um, 
and that I just have so much respect for Stephen as a writer and as a thinker and as an editor um, and think that he has contributed in so many valuable ways to this community. So let's start, Stephen, finding out a little bit about where you began as a writer. So when would you say that you started writing in earnest? Uh, I'd say that I started writing kind of by pure luck. <laughs> so I had this girlfriend in high school and we were going into our senior year and she was taking AP English and she was reading Young Goodman Brown for class the next day. And I was nibbling on her ear and I started reading over her shoulder. And after a few lines, I realized that she was reading a story about a witch's Sabbath. And I was like, why do you get to read the cool stuff? <laughs> so the next day, she asked the AP English teacher if I could join the class. And strangely enough, he agreed, despite my very middling grades and despite my having not taken the entrance exam. His name was Mr. Olson, a legendary teacher. He had taken up the guitar a few years earlier and played Bob Dylan songs for us to interpret at the beginning of class. Anyway, <laughs> I loved the class. And not just because my girlfriend's ear was so close by, I realized that English was cool. So then the AP test came around and I'd been sweating about it because I'd never considered myself the AP type. But then I opened up the test booklet and it turned out that the poem we were supposed to interpret was by my great aunt, <laughs> Mae Swenson, and that I already knew it inside and out and I knew the history behind it and I got a five on the test from pure luck. Or maybe it was cheating. I don't know. And I kind of thought, hey, this writing thing is easy. And there's probably lots of money in it, too. So much money. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went on my mission to Toronto, and I was a very good correspondent. I was writing every week to my family and to my girlfriend. Without my mission president's knowledge, by the way, he had no idea I had a girlfriend until the last day of my mission. And that was the second biggest reaction I got out of him. The first biggest was when I went to a mission reunion and he said, so Elder Carter, what do you do for work now? And I said, Sunstone? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I think uh, I was the first of the grandkids to go on a mission. So I was a novelty and my mom typed out all my letters, my girlfriend being the Urim and Thummim for my horrible handwriting. And she sent them out to all the people she thought would possibly be interesting, uh, who would be in, in, interested. So, of course, I had to be interesting and people claimed to enjoy them. And my mom, bless her heart, filed them all away in these big white binders with pictures of me on her. And it was really nice of her. And I have them all in a safe place. And I've never read them. <laughs> and I probably never will. But, of course, now that I've won the an AML award, someone's going to have to write my biography. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just let them do it. <laughs> so it sounds to me like you owe your career to a bunch of different women. From your yeah, girlfriend, so. to your aunt, to your mom. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like that. Okay, so what about writing more professionally? When did that start? Okay. Again, I would say that it started as pure luck. 
So a few months after my mission, my girlfriend married me. Yay. And a few days afterward, I got a call from the media center at what was then Utah Valley State College. I had applied for a job there as a television push. What this means is that I pushed a television VCR combo around on carts to rooms where teachers had ordered them. So I had been working as an alarm installer, so I told the person who called me that I already had a job. And then I sort of stared at the ceiling for five minutes and called them back and scheduled an interview. And I got the job. And it was a great job because, you know, I'd run around campus for 15 minutes each hour between classes. But then I had 45 minutes to kill. So I applied for a news editor job at the college newspaper. They were so excited to hire me because I was the only one who applied. <laughs> and it was the summer term and nobody was there. So I wrote my first article and the editor-in-chief came down and taught me. He looked at my article and he's like, what is this crap? And he taught me how to use the inverted pyramid scheme. And it was then when I first realized, oh, there's a craft to writing. It's something you can actually learn. And that was probably the most important realization of my career. So anyway, I was often sitting at my desk in the media center writing articles on my desk, on, 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 on my computer. And this guy who had just been put in charge of the distance education de de department was constantly walking by my desk. And one time he stopped and he said, what do you even do here? I said, well, I push TVs around. He says, no, I mean, I walk by you multiple times a day and you're just sitting there looking at your computer. What are you doing, surfing the web? I said, no, I'm writing. And he said, oh, well, we're going to start this new thing where, where we put college courses on the internet. Do you want to write some? This is how old I am, okay? <laughs> so... That's how my wife and I started writing classes on accounting, aviation, uh, building inspection technology. That was an interesting one. And Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> so the managing editor at the college paper that I uh, got a job at a real newspaper. This was back when news was printed on paper. I don't know if people remember that, but um, it was called the Provo Sun. And she gave me and my wife jobs there. And that's where I learned about the ravenous world of the press. And then I got a job at the Warham Daily Journal, which, as you might infer from the title, was a daily newspaper. So now I was writing at least three articles a day. I covered Provo politics in the Utah Valley State College. That was a nutty time of my life because I worked three jobs. The newspaper, uh, UVSC's online education, writing the internet courses, and I was working at UVSC's Center for the Study of Ethics, where I was an administrative assistant. And I had two kids. So I was run absolutely ragged. But hey, you know, I was in my early 20s. I had energy. I had my looks. And I've <laughs> only lost one of those since then. <laughs> well, it seems to me like even though Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours thing has been kind of debunked, but there is a kernel of truth underneath that, that if you can get yourself into a situation when you're young and just start practicing something, 
um, that you were practicing writing every single day for hours and hours and hours for pay and not for pay. Yeah. And I was pretty lucky that it was mostly for pay. That yeah. doesn't happen a lot anymore. No, no. Um, do you feel like that time was was instrumental into your developing an identity as a writer, being able to say, I am a writer? Yeah. And one of the things that it absolutely did was making writing not so sexy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you said, something that you can learn, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it took sort of the mysticism out of it. And also, you know, I had to grind out 1500 words a day, every day. And I had to go out and find the stories and write them. And I had to go and talk with the professors, figure out what they needed to do, write it. And so writing was work. Yeah. And so once it crossed that threshold, I didn't need to be inspired anymore. Mm -hmm. It's good to have it demystified early, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I was meeting a lot of people in my MFA course. They were like, there's this ritual that I need to go through in order to start writing, to start writing. And it takes three hours. I'm like, oh boy, I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> All right. Well, tell me then what led you to decide to go to graduate school for writing. All right, graduate school. So even though I was working myself to death, and even though my wife was doing what she could to bring in the extra money, you know, writing those courses, we just couldn't <laughs> pay our mortgage, which we never should have taken on. Don't take on a mortgage early in life. <laughs> we looked into our future, and we saw that we had to get some more education so we could get better jobs. I have no idea why we thought creative writing in Alaska was the way to go. I mean, it had no in lucrative endpoint, mm -hmm. but that's what we did. And it turned out to be the best five years of my life because the best two years had already been taken, right? Yeah. So I took screenwriting uh, for one of my very first classes. And I was a little disappointed that it was being taught by a documentary filmmaker. I mean, what do documentary filmmakers know about screenwriting, I thought? I mean, they just film reality and then they edit it, right? So as it turns out, uh, this was the most important class that I took because it taught me, as did my editor at the College Times, that narrative structure is a craft that can be learned. And this was a godsend for me because I had zero idea how to structure a story, which was weird because, you know, I was a voracious reader but somehow narrative structure, it just never penetrated my head. So I read all the narrative studies books I could get my hands on. Though I will admit that uh, Robert McKee's book, the one with the long title, Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting. Well, that was, that was my Bible. I read it over and over again for five years. And I watched so many movies analyzing their structure. <laughs> It's actually kind of embarrassing how long it took me to figure it out, especially when my you know fellow MFA students were saying, Carter, don't you know that structure is dead? And there are all these people around me who just intuited what structure was. And I couldn't do that. I, I had to learn it. There were what? People in your, I guarantee you there were people in your MFA program who were not intuiting structure at all. Though. <laughs> <laughs> they just, just weren't willing to admit it. <laughs> writing whatever came into their head. So that did happen a lot. 
But yeah. there was definitely an anti-structure strain in my particular program. I don't know what it was like everywhere yeah. else. Yeah. yeah, I had the same thing. Did you? <laughs> but that okay. was what I focused on. Yeah, so, so talking about the direction that you went then. Okay. So I started watching a lot of movies because they're, you know, very short stories that have an entire arc. It was very useful. And so eventually I could write, I, I, I could read it. I could watch a movie or I could write a, or, or, or read a novel and I could start seeing its structure in my head, like a blueprint. And when I could do that, I finally realized that taking a screenwriting class from a documentary filmmaker was the perfect way to do it. They have to be so good at narrative structure that they can pull it out of the chaos of reality. And the interesting thing was, I actually got a chance to do that because I got hired onto a grant that was working with first-year teachers in rural Alaska. So these are people who have just graduated from college and their first teaching job is in the bush with an indigenous culture. And I found out about this uh, newly married Mormon couple from Seattle who were coming up to take their first teaching job in Shishmaref, which is this tiny sandbar island on the west coast of the Seward Peninsula. So I called them and I said, can I follow you around with a camera for your first year? And they said, yes. And it was fascinating watching them. And then I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the stories of first-year teachers in Alaska and what they told about their experience. And I went from like the 1800s to 2005. And eventually I edited together a hundred hours, I think it was 126, 126 hours of footage into a movie, a little documentary about this couple, which you can watch on YouTube. It's called Butched, Teaching Life in Alaska. Oh, that's great. I didn't know little little fact about your career i'll have to look it up yeah i i really enjoyed that it was it was wild just going up into the tundra and seeing these people trying to make their lives there but of course since i was in these indigenous com communities i also got to learn about indigenous ways of storytelling which are completely different in many ways from western methods so that blew my brain apart and so none of this would have happened if we hadn't have gone to Alaska. So again, it was a lot about luck. But then, since this is a Mormon thing, I'll talk about the spiritual stuff too. So uh, on the spiritual side, in the months before we left for Alaska, I had this dream that we had arrived in Alaska and that it was beautiful. The light was golden. Uh, the landscape was lush, and there was this feeling of wide openness. But then the sun set, and it became completely dark, and I became terrified. And I dropped my hands and my knees and was just trying to feel my way around. But I had no idea where I was. I was in a completely new place. I didn't know where I was going. And that's kind of what happened to me. <laughs> I had enrolled in the fiction program. But whenever I sat down to write, all I could write about was Mormonism. It was as if, you know, getting 2,000 miles away from Utah into a totally new landscape with this extreme climate had snapped all of the stabilizing connections I had 
And I was trying to figure out what life meant. The first thing I wrote was just this, these memories of a fishing trip with my Cub Scout troop. But then I started writing about how the priesthood had affected my life and about what had happened when my great aunt May left Utah to pursue her poetry. And while I was writing these things, there was one part of me that wanted my stories to be faith affirming. Mm -hmm. And there was another part of me that wanted exactly the opposite. And the thing was, both were really tempting. I'd never felt this before. And I haven't found myself bouncing back and forth between them while I was writing. And this wasn't just a narrative exercise. I wasn't just trying to write something that we get published. I was trying to figure out what my life meant, you know, what eternity meant, what, what everything I'd ever believed meant. And as the Alaskan darkness set in, a dark night of my soul was setting in too, and it terrified me. Mm -hmm. My dreams seemed to be coming true, and I wanted more than anything to escape. And that was when I remembered Eugene England. We talked a little bit earlier about how I worked for him as a as his assistant. So, um, I uh, so. I was working in the Center for the Study of Ethics, mm -hmm. and for some reason, Eugene England, you know, one of the granddaddies of Mormon literature, uh, and also a founding member, uh, member of the AML, he was shuffled out of the English department and into the Ethics Center. I don't know why. And he was driving Melanie crazy. She was the executive assistant. And Elaine Englehart, another important mentor who taught me philosophy, she said, Stephen will you please be Gene's assistant before Melanie quits on us? <laughs> and so suddenly, he was driving me crazy. I'm kidding. Sort of. Yeah, well, I, I'm curious as to why you would say that. Like, what, what was it like to work for you? <laughs> it's a good question. First thing, he was the world's kindest man. He could give Mr. Rogers a run for his money. But he would call me every five minutes. <laughs> and I'd look over at Melanie and she'd smile at me. <laughs> but he had a ton to do. He had just been given a national endowment for the humanities grant to start a Mormon studies program at UVSC. So he was bringing in scholars and putting on symposiums and starting classes. And of course, there was a ton of busy work to do. And he was constantly calling me and telling me what it is that I needed to do next. And I was going, what? But um, I got to meet some amazing people the, uh, th through this, like Armand Moss, uh, Wayne Booth, and even a young Michael Austin. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Which proved fateful, to tell you the truth. But um, it was one moment in his office that, that really changed the course of my life. We were just shooting the breeze, and he was reminiscing, and then he grew sad and thoughtful, and he said something along the lines of, you can't imagine how difficult it was hearing the things I heard from men that I believe are called of God. And that was kind of the first time that he had talked with me about the things, the events that 
and sort of forced his retirement from BYU. And as he talked, I could tell that he was still really struggling with with the pain that those events had caused. I mean, they'd only been like a year or two in the past. It, it was a tension that he that, that he obviously wanted to be relieved of. But the thing was, as I watched him, I didn't see him trying to escape that tension. I, I didn't see him rendering judgments on the general authorities or, you know, the faculty members or any of the people that he had clashed with. And I also didn't see him trying to justify himself. Instead, I just saw him sit there dwelling in this tension and trying to understand it. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And it stuck with me. So starting then, I was sort of training to dwell in painful tension the same way that Gene did. And that was kind of the basis of pretty much all of my writing since. Mm-hmm. So um, to get back to what I was thinking as I was trying to write and constantly being sidetracked by this stuff, um, as I was trying to navigate these two rivers, these two currents, trying to establish trying to figure out what was real, who I was, and my dreams starting to become true, that's when I remember Jeep. And I said, okay, instead of choosing one or the other, I need to stay in the tension. And then in the midst of the dark night, the dark long night of the Alaskan soul, I saw the aurora. Have you ever seen it? You lived in Minnesota. But not but only in northern Minnesota are you gonna see it. I never saw it in the Twin Cities. Oh, okay. So yeah, so I was like up on the Arctic cir- circle, and it's the most extraordinary thing I have ever seen in my life. And I live and, and I go to southern Utah. That's how amazing it, it is. It's it's like the sky has muscles. It's, it's like horses are racing across the sky. It's, it's actually the most persuasive argument for God's existence that I've come across. But of course, you can only see the aurora in the darkness, in the deep cold. And to me, that's the reason you need to stay in the tension, even when it's painful, especially when it's painful, even when you feel like your whole world is imploding. Because you'll see something that you never expected to see. So that's how I started writing personal essays. All of them were about Mormonism. (laughs) None of them were easy. None of them answered my questions. Uh, They simply kept me in the tension until I saw something new. Can I move for me anyway? Yeah, go go ahead. One of your um, essays that I think does an excellent job at being at that in that tension. Um, smoke and mirrors. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've even thought about that essay in in a while, but um, 
I think you wrote it back in maybe 2006, 2007. Um, but when I taught creative writing for BYU for a few years, I would teach that essay. You did? Uh, mm -hmm. Wow. I did. I didn't know that. <laughs> and I, one of the reasons that I taught it is because I thought, so, so just to encapsulate it a little bit, you're writing about your brother. Mm -hmm. And and you write about some temple experiences and you write about how your brother is not able to come into the temple with the rest of your family and your desire to stay outside with him in the car while he smokes a cigarette. And should you stay with him in the car or should you follow the rest of your family into the temple? And it ends with this image of, of you deciding to go back into the temple but bringing the cigarette smoke from that time in the car with your brother with you. Um, and there's there's charity for everyone in that story and for yourself. And I love how it shows you trying to figure out, again, it's the those contraries um, that are both there. How can I be in two places at the same time um, that I thought was, was so powerful um, and, and, we would always have great class discussions when we would discuss that essay. Wow. I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. I had no idea. I was taught at BYU. <laughs> yeah. This is great. <laughs> yes. So I think, I think you do a masterful job um, with being able to inhabit those, those liminal spaces. You, you really are a master at that. So. The interesting thing is something very similar happened about, five years ago, except that this time, um, most of my family stayed outside the temple while a sister got married. And it was just me and another brother who went in. Mm -hmm. And I wrote one about that too, called Three Ceilings. <laughs> about that. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. It's in dialogue. You can find it okay, there. Okay. I will, I will look it up. Um, I don't, I probably won't ever teach at BYU again, but if I did, I would have to do both of them side by side. It would be interesting. Those, those who are now, I know Darlene Young and a few others sometimes teach um, Mormon lit and creative writing. Um, I think that that's, that's the kind of literature we need to be reading. Those are some lucky students to have Darlene. I know. They, they really, really are. Um, okay, so you got your PhD. When did you, when did you get your PhD? What year? 2006. 2006. Eight. 2008. 2008. No, 2006. Okay. There you go. Um, because I think you you came back to Utah right about that time. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And I came, I had been living in Minnesota and we moved back to Utah um, also in 2006. And that's when you and I met because we were both kind of jumping into the Association for Mormon Letters world. That's right. Mormon lit world right around that same time. So, so tell me what happened once you came back to Utah. Okay. So when I came back to Utah, I didn't actually come back to Utah. I came back to Wyoming. Oh yes. I remember that. <laughs> that's actually, despite the fact that I lived in Alaska, that's the period I call my season in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> because my goal when I got my PhD was to become a college professor. I really wanted that, but it didn't happen. And I shouldn't feel bad about that because it just doesn't happen. So anyway, my wife and I started teaching school 
uh, in in Wyoming. I taught high school English, and she taught fourth fourth grade. So um, it was actually kind of a crummy time for me at the beginning because my story of my life was gone, and I didn't know if I wanted to die in Wyoming. <laughs> so um, I met my students, and uh, they had zero interest in Greek tragedy, Shakespeare, or you know. Shirley Jackson's the, the lottery, and they were also bigger and stronger than I was. <laughs> so I had to learn to survive. I was lucky in that I, this is bizarre, I only had three classes I had to teach, and none of them had more than 12 students in it. So all you Utah teachers, how can I sign up in Wyoming? <laughs> it's an amazing place. So anyway, I had time to prepare, and I prepared out the wazoo. I thought about these students. I thought, what would make them interested in literature? And so I put together pretty much a new curriculum that still addressed the standards. And I started with cartoons so that I could lure them in. You know, I took some lessons from Satan. You put a little web around them and start leading them, right? So I started leading them down the path of literature. And uh, I even showed them an episode of Michael Moore's television show, The Awful Truth, which just shocked them. (laughs) <laughs> but pl- provided plenty of fodder for us to talk about rhetoric. So anyway, um, this was really important to me because I had an audience who did not give a fig about my subject, and I had to figure out how to see them and how to get to 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 them. They were a baptism by fire, and the tools that I forged there with them were absolutely uh important to what I've been doing since because I need to see my audience. So uh, actually, when I got offered the editorship of Sunstone, I struggled over whether I would accept it because I started liking to teach. <laughs> but we all know how that story ends. And, and I should really thank my friend Lisa Torcaso Downey for persuading me mm-hmm. to take the job. And I hope that I've lived up to her expectations. I didn't know that was Lisa who encouraged you to do that. She was. She talked me through it. Wow. Yeah, Lisa's great. I love Lisa. She's one of the best. So tell me a little bit about your time in Sunstone. Well, you're still working for Sunstone. but I'm still here. They haven't fired me yet. I feel so lucky. And in some ways, that is the least interesting part of my life story. <laughs> because most of it involves me sitting in front of a computer, moving words around trying to make them better. But it's a job that I take very seriously. And I think maybe that makes me a bit overbearing sometimes. I know that I've alienated a few people. and I feel really bad about that. But one of the most important things that I learned from my failures was kind of how to get the author ready for my edit. <laughs> Especially if I'd suggested a lot, you know, how to write the email to kind of take an assets-based approach, right? Yep. So I always become very deeply invested in making sure that the article or the story or the essay or the poem or whatever was not only as good as it could be, but also seeing if we could get it to take one more step forward. Because to me, that's the purpose of Sunstone. It's to push the conversation forward. So I'd read all the back issues in Sunstone. I was very familiar with Dialogue and Exponent 2 and what they published. And I didn't want the conversation to just circle around. Mm -hmm. I wanted us to find something new together. 
Because to me, you know, that's the essence of Mormonism. It's to push into new territory, you know, to have new visions. And there, all, there, there were always seeds of that in the I, in, 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 in what the people in, in what people were sending me new ideas and and I wanted to help those grow so the last 15 years has just been me sort of plugging away adding to the corpus of Mormon discourse article by article story by story poem by poem and even art piece by art piece because I'm kind of the art director as well and I go out and try to find interesting Mormon artists who are doing and saying new things and Getting them in there. So, mostly what I feel about when I look back on my time at Sunstone is just plain old gratitude. It's, it's, it's been an, a stroke of amazing luck to be in this position where I can see so many new ideas getting born. All of these wonderful people who want to contribute to Mormon thought and question it and and diversify it and often writing for free god bless them expanding our vision you know kind kind of the in the way that joseph smith said taking us as high as the utmost heavens and down also into the darkest abysses both are essential well and i think sometimes um people do not understand the value of a great editor. And the fact that you have been there consistently over the past 15 years at Sunstone as such an engaged, thoughtful editor, it's it's huge. And and just kind of like the the orchestra in the pit in a musical. You you don't see you don't you see the performers on the stage and you don't know all the work that went into the orchestra. I think of excellent editors in that same way. It's it's so much work and it's a real skill um, and you are one of the best. So so I, I think that that is a really important part of your career trajectory and your contribution to Mormon letters is, is all the facilitating you've done, all the work you've done to help other people's work really shine. It's really, really important. So, okay. So let's talk then a little bit about... Um, we we don't have a ton of time left. You could talk a little bit about narrative theory if you want, or you can talk a little bit about some of your projects, your books, essays, um, or you could weave them both in. So what would you like to talk about? Okay. I do want to talk about narrative theory. I thought you might. <laughs> I kind of put some work in. <laughs> so... So in grad school, I learned, as we talked about, principles of narrative, and I put all my effort into learning how to write a good story, how to analyze one, how to spot a good story in the wild. And that's kind of where I thought I'd stay, you know, just learning to understand story structure better and better. But then I came across a novel by fantasy author uh, Terry Pratchett, and in his introduction, he claims, I'm going to read this, it's too good. Stories etch grooves deep enough for people to follow in the same way water follows certain paths down a mountainside. And every time fresh actors tread the path of the story, the groove runs deeper. Or if you prefer, think of it like this. Stories are a parasitical life form. 
warping lives in the service only of the story itself. Unquote. So this is a long way of saying people don't tell stories. Story tell, stories tell people. And I've become more and more convinced of that. Not that stories are actual beings, but that people perceive reality and create their identities through stories that already exist. And I haven't been able to decide if that's really cool or abjectly terrifying. <laughs> so, of course, I've been sitting in the tension between the two. <laughs> so, what narrative theory has done, which I think is essential to what I've been doing, is it's helped me, knowing this, to be able to step back from any question and be able to look at it. Because every question is based on a story about what reality is or who you are. And when you can see that story, you can also see what it presupposes, how it functions, and how it interacts with the stories around it, and finally, its real-world consequences. But the thing is, the only way to be able to see a story productively is to look at it non-judgmentally. You have to watch what it does without deciding if what it's doing is right or wrong. Because once you judge something, that's when you stop seeing it. You can only see after that what uh, reasons why you're right. So, uh, in other words, a story takes you over. So some of my friends accuse me of being a, the guy with a hammer who thinks everything is a nail. I walk around thinking that everything is a story, and they're right, but I think I'm right too. <laughs> so the one thing to note is that I don't necessarily think that it's bad to be told by a story. Sometimes I actually think it's the most beautiful and meaningful thing that can happen to you at a given point. I mean, that's what ritual is, right? And so I also know what it's like to look back, to look back and see how a path that a story took me down how it made me hurt people around me. They've done that to me too. And I also know what it's like to be taken out of a story that I love and watching it disappear and feeling utterly bereft. So to me, narrative theory isn't just theory. This is life. This is doing things that actually can affect the quality of life and the quality of spirituality and the quality of meaning. So to me, narrative is the water that humans uh, swim, swim in. So to finish off, because I know we have 10 minutes left, right? Yep. And people are probably just dying to ask questions, all three of you. So um, I could have gone and written about other things. But I chose to stick with Mormonism. And there's a reason for that. One of them is Michael Austin, the young Michael Austin, coming to UVSC and giving this really interesting speech. And I don't know if he's pub pub published it, but he uh, talked about how he had been reading ethnic literature and loving the strong culture that the writers had to work with, the way they could push back against it, the way they could work with it, the way that it give, gave them such unique meaning. 
And he was saying, you know, I wish that I had a culture like that too, so I could write stuff like that. And then I realized, oh, wait, I'm a Mormon. <laughs> so then it, it really clicked into place for, for me when I was taking a graduate level anthropology class. And I saw all these fascinating, mostly indigenous cultures. And not once did I think, is this the true culture? Mm -hmm. That didn't matter to anthropology. What mattered was that it was a culture and people were living in it and making meaning from it. And I thought, oh, I'm living in a culture too. It says it's the true culture, but most of the indigenous cultures that I've been reading about say that too. That's just what cultures say. So after that, for me, Mormonism didn't have to be true to be valid anymore. And, I, and when I looked at the fruit of Mormon culture, I saw that it was complex, changing, odd, and quite beautiful in some places, just like every other culture that I'd been reading about. And I also realized that people had been working hard to make that beauty. And I thought, hey, I know Mormon culture. It's part of the way I'm wired. And now I know how to tell stories. And I also know how to tell when a story is telling me. And I also know when I want a story to tell me. And I want to create some beauty. And this seems to be the perfect place to do it. So the interesting thing is, uh, as some pe people know, I split my Sundays between the LDS Church and the Unitarians. And I can really see the difference in my ability to create between the two. I love the Unitarians. They are kind to the marrow. Just being with them, like through sheer osmosis, I become a better person. But I've only been with them for five years, and they are part of my childhood. I haven't sacrificed for them the way I've sacrificed for the LDS church. So their stories, you know, don't sneak into my dreams. So I don't have nearly as much material to work with there. So becoming a Unitarian writer, the way I'm a Mormon writer, would require things that I just don't have. And I've realized, the more I work with Mormon material, the more material I have to work with. It's a well that just is constantly overflowing. Now, note <laughs> that I'm not saying that I'm constantly inspired by it. <laughs> it's more that I'm constantly compelled mm -hmm. uh, to stay in the tension. I'm compelled to stay in the tension because there is so much tension in Mormonism, <laughs> which means that there is so much room to catch a glimpse of the aurora. Well, I love that image. Um, I want to make sure that in the time we have left that we talk a little bit about um, especially your most recent project, so the biography that you have, have just completed on Virginia Sorensen. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that project ties in with your interest of, in all things Mormon? Yes, here it is, my biography of Virginia Sorensen, which was, to tell you the absolute truth, the highlight of my writing life. Because in a lot of ways, she was a pioneer for, for this kind of literature. She lived in two worlds. She grew up in, in Manti, and she went to the Mormon church. She was a Mormon. She loved church. But her mom was a Christian scientist, and her dad 
was a was what's what's a jack for me. So she lived in these two different worlds. And then when she went out and started writing her novels, she was able to inhabit that place. She she called it the the in-between place where she was able to it's extraordinary. When you read her novels, the Orthodox Mormon and the post-Mormon will both feel utterly seen. She knows their souls and she can put them on paper. And it's gorgeous. I really can't recommend Virginia Sorensen enough. So which novel of hers, if if you were to recommend a novel of hers to our audience, which novel would you recommend? Well, if it's one that they can get their hands on, I would say read Where Nothing Is Long Ago because it's on ebook. You can find it on Kindle. And they're telling me that The Evening in the Morning is going to come out soon. The Evening in the Morning is a perfect novel. Mm-hmm. It is extraordinary. But if you want something that gets everything about Virginia Sorensen all bundled into one, you should read Many Heavens. But that's only in paper and it's very hard to find. But yeah, if you've only got a Kindle, read Where Nothing Is Long Ago. It is picks. Is it? I admit that I haven't read any of her novels, but after I know, but after after reading your book, I am I that next on my to do list is to is to read one of those novels, and I'm great. You are scared. so lucky. It all lies in front of you, Angela. Oh, I'm I'm excited. She is I'm excited. I, I I actually this this is funny because I consider you a writer in Virginia's tra- tra- tradition. I, I think you do much the same thing. I think you have kind of this, the same voice and and the same level of empathy that she had. I, I think you're going to find a a companion soul. I'm excited. I'm excited. I, I've read some shorter things, but but none of her novels. So, so what about your next project? What are you working on now? Um, I am working on a biography of Mae Swenson. Which is kind of <laughs> daunting, because she, uh, I, I, I don't know a lot about poetry, and I'm learning lots of poetry. <laughs> but she's the next one up. That's great. Well, um, I know we just have a couple of minutes left. Can I just ask you? Um, you've been involved in the Mormon literary community for a couple of decades. What are some of the positive changes you see, or what are some of the things that you wish would change more quickly? Any thoughts on that? So, uh, the church is becoming truly worldwide. And I think that that means that Mormon literature, I know that that means that Mormon literature is going to become truly worldwide as well. And what I really think that means is that it will look totally different than it looks now. You know, the people who are kind of part of the AML here t- t- today, we were raised on the stories of early Mormons, the pioneers, the Intermountain West. But I think that very soon that's going to be a niche, a niche within a niche of Mormon literature. People will read it as a curiosity because the church is drifting away from our American past and making room for people in different countries and cultures to create their own stories around Mormonism. And I think we're going to kind of 
be left in the dust as a probably extraordinary and very diverse new vision, new visions come 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 to pass. It's going to explode. And it will be really interesting to watch. I'm watching. <laughs> and I'll edit it for you if you need. Yes, you will. Well, um, Stephen, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and congratulations on this highly deserved award. Thanks. I, I really need to say how much it, it means to me. I just said it. <laughs> it means a lot to me. It it actually means an extraordinary amount to me. Because, you know, you work and you work and I felt like I've been in this dark hole pushing things out and apparently I was doing okay. Thank you. I. It means a lot to me. I had no idea. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or, or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and healthfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.